Hello and welcome to Front Three Quarter View, my Twin Peaks podcast. I'm James and today I'm going to be doing a commentary of what is probably one of the most highly regarded Twin Peaks episodes of all time and probably also by some one of the most highly regarded pieces of television or even maybe television and film of all time and that is of course part 8 of Twin Peaks The Return. So a little bit of background uh, on my thoughts on the episode before I start the commentary. Um, I have been watching the series through since the beginning again so a few probably about a month ago maybe a bit longer I recorded a commentary of Lonely Souls, uh, the episode where Laura Palmer's killer is first revealed, and I had so much fun recording a commentary, and I really wanted to do it again, but didn't quite find the time uh, before the end of season two, and then as I started the return, I thought, well, there's only one episode that I can really do a commentary of that I've got to make the next one, and it is, of course, part eight. Um, the first time I watched this, I was completely astounded by it and how different and unexpected and surprising and just thrilling and inventive it, it felt to me. And it, I mean, I... One of my absolute favourite films is Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey and this feels like it's channelling it and it's Lynchian and Kubrickian and all of those things and Frostian in the best way. So I am going into this episode loving it. I've seen it a fair few times before uh, but I'm really excited to record a commentary of it to see if I pick up on anything new to share my thoughts with you and really just to mainly share my enthusiasm with watching it. So I hope you enjoy listening to me re-experience part eight. Uh, I'm really, really excited to see it again, like really excited for it. And uh, yeah, it's gonna be great. So I'm watching the standard DVD version of part eight on the, re uh, the limited event series box set. So I've not watched any of the idents, I've just pressed play and paused it straight away. So this commentary is designed, you can listen to it uh, at any time of course, but maybe it would work best of all uh, to be listened to alongside another viewing of the episode. So the commentary and the episode will sync up perfectly, I'll tell you when I press play, and then I hope you enjoy listening to it and uh, if you choose to listen to it while watching the episode, then I hope you enjoy uh, re-experiencing the episode alongside it. So, get your remotes at the ready. Here we go. We're going to watch part eight. I'm going to say go, and that's when I'm going to hit play. So, in three, two, one, go. I always associate the Showtime ident with a series called Episodes because that's the first Showtime program I watched. Um, so whenever I hear the Showtime thing, even though I've seen it on the front of Twin Peaks episodes quite a lot of times now, I still associate it with Episodes. So we had the Rancho Rosa logo in 
black and white, and now we've got the face of Laura Palmer. I mean, I it's fascinating watching the return because it it's this weird mix of the old series and the new series, and my love of the old series just gets deeper and deeper every time I watch it, but it was the new series that I loved the most to begin with, and it's the new series really that made me go back to the old series and reappreciate it and reappraise it, and I only love the old series as much as I do now because The Return exists. The Return, the first time I watched it, was honestly much more up my street than the original was, and I think that's now changed, but I mean I still love so much of The Return and uh, having just watched the original series again, I do miss it still. Like, when I'm not watching it, I still miss it. But The Return is just a phenomenal bit of television, and Part 8 is no exception. Um, I do... the title sequence is cool. I find it really interesting that they're kind of doing what they originally planned to do with Season 3 of the show, which is, you know, to really explore the Red Room and the Black Lodge and that space. So it's very fitting that both worlds are in um, are in the title sequence, really. So we open on Cooper and Ray. Ray is just great. Um, he's just so much fun. Actually, watching the past seven parts again. I've really started to appreciate Mr. C a lot more, both Mr. C and Doggy. Doggy has been growing on me every time I've watched it, um, and he is really, really sweet, but this time both of them are have really stood out to me, and Mr. C in particular has really, really stood out to me this time. The performance is much more Cooper-like than I'd ever given it credit for before. I do find Mr. C is an interesting interpretation of Bob 25 years on living in a host all that time because Mr. C doesn't have that chaos that Leland had. It, you know, Bob expresses himself in a very different way in Mr. C. In a way also that's very consistent with how Cooper plays him for like 30 seconds, or sorry, how Carl McLaughlin plays him at the like the last 30 seconds of season two. And the performance is very consistent with that brief glimpse. But Mr. C is really interesting and understated and I, I, his character is just so interesting anyway because he's got all of these like underworld connections and it's kind of like they're I, I don't know they're very it's a ve it feels like he's playing a really long game and I would never have thought Bob would be playing such a long game but I kind of like the idea that like 25 years of essentially inhabiting this doppelganger of Cooper um because it is a doppelganger. It's both a doppelganger who is evil and inherited by Bob. 
um, I think. So it's interesting that, you know, he almost like the time has influenced the fact he can play this long game. His goals aren't huge, but they are very complex and interwoven. And it's a bit like the Josie plot in the original series. I'm still unpacking what Mr. C is entirely doing in some instances. So they're just, we've got some classic Lynch shots here, some classic driving, like the, the headlights on the road. Is I find the first part of this episode so bizarre because it does such a 360 once you've had this. It's almost like, a, I mean, it ends with the Nine Inch Nails, this part, so it does almost feel like you've got that really mini um, episode crammed into this episode that's very different. But I love the fact that this contrasts what's to come so much. Just, I feel like... Mine and Lynch's interests kind of align with the whole, like, cars driving at night, like, chromatics on the radio. <laughs> I feel like we have a very similar sensibility um, when it comes to that. In fact, I, um, I wrote a podcast called Stonefall, which is on Spotify and places, and that's very... Twin Peaks and also Secret History of Twin Peaks inspired. It's about uh, an investigator from Project Blue Book, but it was a good opportunity to explore similar sort of sources of inspiration. Looks like you're out half a Also, I really like the fact that Ray gets the better of Mr. C. That was so surprising when this first happened. Like, the first time I watched it, I was so thrilled because I was like, oh my god, Cooper's going to come back. Which doesn't quite happen. But I've, I've, I've absolutely learned to love Dougie. And it's interesting as well how the series actually does, like, Dougie episodes and Mr. C episodes almost kind of alternating. They're very, that's the other thing I've noticed actually this time is that they're very episodic and delineated um, in ways that I hadn't really pictured before. Like it does feel like each part is very much its own thing. And to be fair, when I was watching it for the first time, most of the parts felt very satisfying in their own right and only frustrating in the sense that it's Twin Peaks and you want it to be frustrating. Um, the music to this bit with the woodsman it's just so good and so understated I'm using that word a lot but I love the fact you can see them like dancing even when it's a shot of Ray it's it's almost like they're physical in some shots but they're they're not physical oh and then the bob orb just rising from Mr. C's stomach. Oh. It's such a clever way of 
you know, Frank Silver still having him in there as that character. It really is so cleverly done. And it's kind of like the fact that Mr. C is almost sort of made immortal because the woodsman, it certainly seemed that way at the time when he survived. It was like, well, the woodsman will just keep turning up. They can do anything. There's that moment in part 17 um, where they turn up after Mr. C's been shot again. And it's, you know, it really does feel like he's actually had these 25 years to prepare and I love these new glimpses into the Red Room as well, like the curtains blowing up and a seeing like the white horse and the the like the woodsmen and the connection to the convenience store, which is here for the first time, uh, coming very soon. Also, I find it interesting and sort of hilarious that the convenience store has just the word convenience store emblazoned on the front. Like it's the most overt thing. I've possibly ever seen in Lynch where it just says like, oh, it's, it's the convenience store. Like we're meant to make that connection straight away. And of course, normally, you know, you might play that through dialogue or through a more subtle reference. But this episode is driven so much on visuals. Um, although, you know, I believe obviously all those visuals were lined out in the script but it's, it's such visual storytelling that you need... Apologies for my yawn there. But you need that sort of like, this is the convenience store, this is the start. Like, you get that instinct that this is the start of everything. Um, but I'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to that point. So we're here at a very odd Roadhouse performance. The Nine Inch Nails. The Nine Inch Nails. I mean, tonally, perfect song for this episode, really, isn't it? Actually, when I watched this episode with my partner for the first time, um, he said that maybe this song should have been intercut with the woodsman fixing Cooper. And I can't help but thinking, like, watching the woodsman and Mr. C with the Nine Inch Nails or with Nine Inch Nails backing them, like, that would have been quite something to watch. Um, so I love the discordant sounds, but it might have been interesting to like intercut those two things. And that's, I think, something interesting about The Return, actually, is that there's not a lot of scenes that are intercut, I don't think. It's very much just like something happens and then you see the next thing and then you see the next thing.
so I'm just letting the uh, the the nine inch nails play out here. Watching this for the first time was very disconcerting because it was kind of like, okay, we're getting the full song and we're getting it about 10 minutes into the episode and why is it here? Like, it does almost feel like it's attached to the end of the last episode. It's like, why has this come here? Like, what is next? Where are we going? Is it because Cooper is coming back was probably my initial thought. But no, we were greeted with a completely surprising flashback after this. And I think seeing those words, like what is it, July 16th, 1945, I was like, oh, okay. This is not what I thought it would be. Why are we back here? This is bizarre. And then just completely amazed and in awe as you go into the heart of that explosion. Um, and I was going to try not to talk about it until it happened, but... I mean, you think about part eight, you know, you can't just, you can't not talk about all of those things straight away. So, I'm going to use this moment of the Nine Inch Nails singing to talk about the Roadhouse a bit, actually, because my impression of the Roadhouse probably not long after I watched The Return for the first time, was this sense that I very much bought into the theory that like it was crossing over into the real world and that the Carrie Page character and, uh, you know, Alice Tremond at the end were in our real world and that that's where they'd crossed over to. And I have a feeling, I don't know whether I'd, I think maybe I watched it, part 18, and I remember going downstairs, I was living at home, I remember going downstairs and just telling my mum everything that had happened and being like, oh my god, it was amazing. I've no idea what it all meant, but it was amazing. And um, I remember saying around that time that it seemed like they were crossing to the real world, and I think what I must have done is watched the episode, gone away and read some theories, and then kind of thought, oh, well, that must be it. Um, you know, it must be them crossing into the real world and maybe the roadhouse is a part of that because there's the whole theory that, um, is it Eddie Vedder who sings in, is it part 16? That, you know, that, that it's his real name. So it's a sign, his real name is you. So it's a sign that they're in the real world and we're here. We've had the break, what would have been the break, and we're here. July 16th, 1945, White Sands, New Mexico, 5.29am. And just the complete feeling of utter bewilderment of what the hell was going on at this point is such a big, mad jump cut. Like you've got the, oh that's so bright, you've got the Mr. C waking up and then you've got this, this music, this oh my god what is that, what's happening, you know, is that like the atom bomb, all of those questions rushing through your head. Every time I watch this I pick up on more details, like the detail of the landscape around it, slowly watching it change, the clouds and like the ruffles and ripples in the sand, 
when I'm able to, watching this in 4K would be amazing because it's just... It's just so slow and beautiful and astonishing. Um, and you know, to to give this as the origin story as well. And again, that was another one of those, I think I've got this innate sense from the episode that it was the origin story. Similarly to how I might have had that innate sense that like, it was Cooper and Carrie had crossed over into our world, um, where they were Linda and Richard. Us, you know, Diane and Cooper had crossed and become Linda and Richard and then he'd found Carrie living in our world. and. It was that sort of innate, maybe this is the interpretation that they're going for, um, that this was the origin story. How, just like the, the chaos and like the madness of this sequence, it, I love the fact that it sort of goes the, the black like burst out from the white and there's lots of different cuts of different things and at this moment it doesn't quite feel like you're traveling but I don't know you do get this sense that you're just seeing another part of this explosion like you're seeing the chaos you get a real sense that like reality is ripping that's totally what this scene gives you. It reminds me in many ways of, I think I've mentioned before that I'm a Doctor Who fan, that first ever Doctor Who title sequence from 1963, you get a real sense in the first like five seconds that the, the kind of universe is tearing and that like you're traveling literally through and into time. And this is very similar, like those black and white bits, you really feel like the universe is like tearing. And then you're in the explosion and it's all of these beautiful colours, but it's beautiful and visually it's amazing, but it's also like terrible because you're in the heart of this just incredible moment. I don't think I'll ever grow tired of this. Of the utter utter madness and by this point I was fully like it's like Space Odyssey when I was watching it and the music as well Kubrick um, used this music in The Shining and I knew it immediately as music from The Shining and that just really added to that whole like Kubrick sense of what Lynch is doing here oh and just the rush of like the the rush of these explosions and the colours and the build up of the music and the fire and like it's just getting more and more ferocious and then like the fact it like occasion oh I love that bit where it looks like the dust kicks up in the black and the white and like the flames roll against each other Oh wow, and then we're at the convenience store already. It's interesting as well, like the changes from black and white to colour back to black and white. The use of black and white to indicate that something's happening in the past. 
there's a whole book, literally a book, like a thesis to be written on the use of colour only in this part, literally just in this 50 minutes of Kelly. Um, imagine like studying this in like a film class. <laughs> Can you like, and just deconstructing this. The convenience store is fascinating in the... You can see the little cans in the window, which is fun. This, for me, this episode was everything I had wanted from Twin Peaks when I first watched it. Literally everything I ever wanted from it. Oh, and then you see, like, from this fire, like, they're, they're almost like ants, aren't they? Or, like, like really tiny creatures just, like, running about and fizzing about. The editing on this is just astonishing. Oh, just, and the sound editing as well. The sound editing is just so pitch perfect with this. Trying to see into the door of the convenience store, because I've never looked before. It looks almost like a bed in some shots, inside. And then the convenience store starts blurring. I'm watching this in my room with all the lights off, so that flashing around the convenience store is so bright. Oh, and then like the, you start to zoom in and then you're back out again and it's... Putting this together must have been the most amazing experience. <clears throat> Actually making me feel a bit giddy. <laughs> and then we're through... It's like a tunnel. Oh, and then it's the... I mean, what do you want to call her? The experiment, the mother of all evil. Also fascinating that Frost hadn't heard the name The Experiment before when it's put to him for his Conversations of Mark Frost book. And then there it is. Like these, you can really tell this is like the birth of something. Like these eggs, creatures like Bob. And then you're back to the explosion. The fact that this is such a long and sustained sequence. See, you know, it's the return is often described as a piece of film and it's... It's interesting because obviously this is kind of one long film anyway, but even in film, like, you don't get this on telly, but you don't get this in film not as much now, not in this way, not in essentially the middle of the story.
and then you get this gold thing in the midst of the fire and you go into it and you can see all of these like red rushing particles and then they start to blend into, if I'm right, the, the sea. So it's interesting then, I wonder, I always forget that that like golden sort of substance is there. Is that the same golden substance that makes it possible for Laura to be born? I'd highly recommend as well the different concept art is available for lots of moments in this story. So the frog moths and the experiment and this castle on the sort of rocky cliff face. Uh, the concept art is available for all of it to look at and it's honestly so interesting to see the different versions they went through. But also you get a real sense. I think it's often easy to sort of say, you know, and obviously this is all Lynch's vision, but there were designers and, you know, CGI artists and people who model in 3D creating this vision that was in the script um, and creating these structures and these creatures. And there's a lot of, a lot of time and love actually from so many people working on this that it really does make it, it's an absolute joy to watch. I'm just fascinated now by this slow zoom into the window and wondering also because obviously the sea here has a purple tint to it. So is this the the purple place that that Cooper goes to? I love how even when that zoom into the window like it has like depths of like black and darkness to it. And then I absolutely adore this piece of music. This is Slow 30s Room by uh, Lynch and Dean Hurley. I just, oh, I, as soon as this played in the episode, I was looking for it straight away. I love it. And then you've got Senorita Dido. It's the credits at name of that, isn't it? and the look into what presumably is the White Lodge. You know, actually what I was just, so Senorita Dido is obviously another part of this, you know, these realms of spirits and people and creatures who are different and unknowable to us. 
And I was thinking that that reminded me of something and I'm rereading A Christmas Carol at the minute. And there's a bit that's really striking where the ghost of Christmas present says, I have many brothers or something like that. And it's like 600 brothers. And that kind of reminds me of this a little bit. Like there's always more people. There's, there's a depth to this like pantheon of creatures and beings, I suppose is a better word. Um, there's a depth to this array of beings that we have only glimpsed. You know, the, the, there are two things probably that I prefer about the way that the original series represents the Red Room and the Black Lodge. And that's the fact the stripes are a darker colour in the original series. I like the stripes a darker colour. Um, and also I like the footsteps when the sound isn't reversed. Because, I, I don't know, there's something so unsettling about that crisp noise of the footstep when it's not edited and it's just normal. And obviously it totally makes sense to reverse the sound, so I get that. Um, and logically it makes more sense to have it reversed, but I do like that original like crisp sound. Because you get, when Cooper is running through the Black Lodge in the season 2 finale, you get the sense of that urgency and that reality of his experience as well. It sort of grounds it a bit. And obviously his footsteps still are not edited by that sound in the return, but there is a, um, the others are, and I do like that sense of reality that not editing the footstep noise gives you. And then there are these strange, so this, when I first did this podcast last year, I was in the process of planning an episode on what this place was um, and my thoughts kind of got a bit jumbled with it I think and so I've not come back to it and uh, and released it but the thing that I think is interesting is I remember thinking about this place that it's like um, it's like a station I to be fair I may have read that somewhere um, and it's like this, there's this place with all these junction boxes. Um, and I think I probably inherited that theory from somewhere. I can't remember where, unfortunately, but that is very much what it feels like to me. Like this is the place that those things are manufactured, but also the place that like all the signals from all of those other weird bell shaped devices come in from and go to. Oh, another, this is the fireman, isn't it? Another beautiful bit of music. Um, just the, the, like, the carpet of that place looks like the sea outside, which is amazing. And obviously this is the same theatre that Mulholland Drive was filmed in, which I didn't realise until, or I read somewhere really recently. I love the fact it's the Mulholland Drive theatre. It's just astonishing, isn't it? It's such a beautiful place.
and the warning that this terrible thing has happened. So this this bows an interesting question, right? So in terms of a timeline, if these beings are restrained by such a concept as time, which is always something you wonder because both Laura and Cooper get older, but time is clearly partially flexible for the these lodges. Um, and I wonder whether 25 years really felt like 25 years for Cooper. And I really hope not. I really hate the idea of him being in there for 25 years and feeling every minute. That's, to, to put it in perspective, by the time you hear this episode, it will be a few days until I turn 25. So it's my entire life in the Black Lodge. How weird is that? That's so odd. I really hope you like that's a, oh, a hell of a long time to be in that room. All the stripes that make you go dizzy after a while. So, a few things to talk about here then. The time, first of all, this implies that if Bob has only just been born, that it's never it was never like the giant versus Bob, as it might have seemed in the original series. It was the giant versus the mother of all evil, and then the mother of all evil on the family tree of lodge beings gives birth to the frog moths and bob and the man from another place or rather you know mike's inhabiting spirit um who later splits off into mike and the man from the other place and then does that make laura palmer the bob equivalent the child of the fireman as we now know him to be is the fireman the same person as the giant presumably He's there to fight the fire of the fire walk with me. You know, is Senorita Dido the mother? That moment where she walks in, Senorita Dido walks into the theatre is beautiful. And the other thing I wanted to point out as well was the spotlight. So me and my partner were actually having a conversation about this the other day because um, we are now both obsessed Twin Peaks fans, which is amazing. And we were discussing what the significance of that spotlight is in the scene where Maddie dies. And I always maintain, I mean, it's like, for me, it's like the truth. It's like reality. It's sort of exposing something. So it exposes Bob, um, Leland as Bob. It shows up, it's a light through our world into their world. And it's interesting that the spotlight is used here because it shows onto the giant and then onto Senorita Dido. And this gold light that's coming from the fireman is just... You get the sense that maybe this wasn't planned. It was literally just his response. And his response to, you know, the, the creation of such a, an evil as Bob. Because it must, the mother of all evil must have existed beforehand, right? Judy must have existed beforehand. Much like, so if she's the extreme negative force, does that mean that the fireman is the extreme positive force? It certainly looks like that's a possibility. He makes this fascinating, it's like lines drawn in the sand. It's a good name for a poem, that, I might steal that. 
you know, like, I, I'm aware as well that all of these questions that I'm posing are things that I've thought a lot about the answers to and a lot has been written about the answers, you know, of those as well and I've read a lot of those answers. But every time you watch it, there's such a sense of joy to be found in asking those questions again. Does my theory work? What could this mean? Is this as simple as, you know, as it appears? Is it the first conclusion that you come to? And the first conclusion is probably that Laura Palmer is created by the firemen to combat the creation of Bob. And that's probably accurate. I feel like the simplest explanation might be it. Of course, there's more to explore within that, but that's the joy of it, isn't there? And uh, this acting, I don't know the name of the woman that plays Senorita Dido, but... That bit where Laura Palmer's face appears in the orb often makes me quite emotional. It really hits me that bit. It's like such a beautiful moment of hope. And the moment where Senorita Dido just like kisses it and sends it off, it's just, it's like a mother, isn't it? It's like a mother and her child. Oh, there's something interesting to say about gender there, isn't there? The mother of all evil, the fireman as her opposite, Senorita Dido as a mother figure. I love this moment where like the gold, this gold pipe sort of like pierces reality through this cinema screen, which probably has something to be said for Lynch's whole philosophy really. And then it becomes black and white. And I love even the picture of the earth looks like it's from the forties or the fifties even just in its simplicity and obviously the black and white and the graininess of it. So where did it go? Where did the golden orb go? What an utterly, utterly beautiful scene. And then we fast forward to another incredible I love the fact it starts with 45 and it counts forward. I was thrilled at the time when that caption came up, just because we weren't done with the weird stuff in the past and it was amazing. Clearly, like, the fact that the frog moth takes nine years to hatch, no, 11 years to hatch, is the sign that maybe that's why Laura took so long. Because she is this similar being. I love Lynch's fascination with Laura. I think it's so important. And I think, you know, as well, it's in the conversations with Mark Frost's book, it was very much Frost had the instinct that it was time to explain a little bit of where those creatures came from and where the beings came from. And it was just manifested itself in this beautiful, bizarre storytelling. 
So it's hard in the concept art, the frog moths in one of the examples have owl faces and it's hard to see whether that actually came true in the finished piece. But I love the fact that there's still this sense of like something inside the egg, even when it's gone. It doesn't just look like the inside of an egg, does it? And there is definitely a lot to be said as well for the special effects in this because some of them are so realistic and some of them are obviously deliberately very artificial and it's like the egg cracking looks artificial but the frog moth looks completely believable. Oh, and this bit with the two kids. I think the fact that that was Sarah Palmer was probably something I didn't realise until I read about that. I don't think that was an instinctive thing at all. Oh, Sarah, I wish it was good luck. I honestly don't think this episode could have got any better for me. Like, it starts off with a moody driving scene, a dramatic confrontation, a weird scene to odd music where someone is brought to life. And then you have an origin story, starting with a Stanley Kubrick S zoom into an explosion. And then you've got this beautiful black and white theatrical scene with this emotional moment where Laura Palmer is born. And then you've got two kids on a date in the 50s, this... American retro feel with this like deep danger beneath it very Lynchian and the woodsman who is floating down from the sky like Mary Poppins definitely a Mary Poppins style moment that I will call that woodsman Mary Poppins from now on And the scene that is <laughs> iconic. It's just, I think this is, this might be quite a bold statement. I think this is better American suburbia stuff than something even like Blue Velvet, which gets that American suburbia darkness so well and obviously Twin Peaks as a whole God of Light God of Light Iconic um, My terrible both American accent and woodsman impression there Oh it's terrifying It's like this reality distorting by these figures and it's the ordinary people that are being distorted by it and that woodsman peering through into the window and all of them appearing out of this desert. Absolutely terrifying. But I feel like it's like, just there's, some, there's everything about this. It captures that American suburban, it's not even really suburbia, is it? But that American retro feel, I think possibly the best Lynch has ever captured it, genuinely. 
And it's also, this bit is beautifully narratively conventional as well. <laughs> And interesting that the credits in this series often reveal a lot about the characters, so Richard Horn and Senorita Dido's name, but it's interesting that these two are referred to as boy and girl, like that mystery does remain. Is this the... I don't think this is Leland though, is it? Is it? I don't necessarily buy that this is Leland, but I buy that that's Sarah. I don't know if it's meant to be, I can't remember. I think maybe it was initially thought it would be Sarah and Leland, and then actually maybe the thinking has shifted to it just being Sarah, I'm not sure. There's just so much to unpack here. She always looks a bit like Eleven out of Stranger Things, I, I think. I love how modern that is as well. That reaction, that awkwardness to the kiss just feels so like down to earth. These kids are honestly so, so good. And that's the thing, everything feels so real as well as fully feeling like it's a very, very retro dream of how things were. Like it is, you know, in one of my early podcasts I talk about nostalgia and hauntology and this is very, very much that dream, remembering a past that never was, it fully fits into that description, but it entirely works because it, it's this perfect vessel to explore you know the the darkness that arrives and it does make sense that this very perfect existence seemingly and very ordinary existence if nothing else is gonna be corrupted by this evil that we saw born 11 years ago so it makes sense to have that idealized American pastoral sort of thing because then the evil that arrives really stands out and also the the behind the scenes footage of Lynch walking into this radio station when it was built is one of my favourite Twin Peaks behind the scenes moments where he's just like it was only going to be a room they've built a whole station and he's just like you know, we could we could film a whole drama in this thing, and I'm just like, David Lynch, please let me write that drama you film in this radio station. A 50s radio station is just the most... It's just so cool. Oh, the aesthetics. I just love the aesthetics of this. They're just irresistible. And, like, even this, the girl by the filing cabinet with the hair and the outfit, it's an Edward Hopper um, homage. You know, it's a reference to a Hopper painting, which is just... I love the fact it's a reference to a Hopper painting. I think Edward Hopper is just like, you want to show retro America? 
Edward Hopper, all the way. Just one of my favourite artists. And then it's disrupted by some very, very gory. You know, head crashing. This song as well. I have never heard this song before, but I just, it's one of my literally favourite old songs to listen to. It's one of my favourite Twin Peaks soundtrack songs to listen to. It's just, it just fits this so well. And interesting as well that it's reused in the scene between Laura and, um, oh not Laura, sorry, Diane and Cooper later on. I love the glimpses into the other bits of the town. So Pop's Diner, which looks a lot like Hap's Diner from Fire Walk With Me, but also it's called Pop's like in Riverdale and the logo is the same as Pop's from Riverdale and Shelley's, uh, I'm sorry, and Shelley is now in Riverdale and you wonder whether that's a reference because Riverdale is a very idealised 50s America in modern day with darkness in suburbia sort of thing. So, you know, is it a very obvious reference to Pops? Um, Riverdale has certainly made lots of references to Twin Peaks. It has an episode called Firewalk With Me and an episode called Lynchian. And then we get the Woodsman's Strange Poem. So another, obviously like another reference to the horse. I'm still here, I've not been sent to sleep by the woodsman's poem, I'm just watching this moment. Oh, and then in the moment where everyone is asleep, the frog moth is back. What a wonderful, like, collaboration between, like, Frost's storytelling instincts, Lynch's visual abilities that sounds a bit patronizing i'm just trying to look in you know what i think it really actually does have an owl's face still it's definitely got a very odd non-frog like face And that's it, Sarah Palmer, not Palmer yet, but Sarah is asleep. Come on, the frog moth is just so creepy. What an amazing moment of television that we got this. Like, how lucky to get this in an already pretty outstanding and surreal and inventive series. To get a moment like this, I would spend years watching a series like this. I think it's absolutely beautifully done. Oh, it's so creepy. The frog moth climbing into her mouth. And it's like the mouth stretches out slightly further than it should. Um, Oh, it's so realistic, the frog moth going in. The bit for me is where, like, its foot touches her nose. 
and the slowness of its last hand. It just looks so realistic. It's so well done. So, if there will be more discussion about this on later podcasts, I'm 100% sure of it. But can that be the mother of all evil that went into Sarah? Because the mother of all evil spawned the frog moths and not is a frog moth. Does it mean that the mother of all evil is more ready? Is it like to take over Sarah later? Is it like a sleeper agent activated by Sarah's grief? The... The radio man's head was just crushed. What a, I mean, what a beautiful set that is. And what a beautifully her, surreal, horrific and outstanding episode the whole thing is. And then the woodsman sort of eaten away by the darkness there. But yeah, it's interesting the the you know, what exactly kind of climbed inside Sarah Palmer. Was it something that made it easier for the mother of all evil to do so? Was it actually just the mother of all evil? Such a small cast as well for this one. And then you've got the horse like in the distance at the end, which is a really nice touch. She does look slightly like Shelley, the girl actually, which is interesting. Um, but I mean, so, there we have it. I mean, well, I'm not sure I offered anything new other than, um, oh my god, this bit's amazing. But a really outstanding, different, unusual, um, and completely, frankly, groundbreaking, revolutionary bit of telly. Like, it is groundbreaking. And as a way of telling an origin story, literally pitch perfect and there we go that is it that is the end the lynch and frost productions logo is up and you even get the showtime logo in black and white as well it's such a every episode every detail of that episode is just so well done and finely tuned and the attention to detail in it is just phenomenal it really is something quite unlike anything else I've ever seen and have seen since, frankly. Um, it's just so inventive and exciting to watch. And it's such, it's such a great 
part to have in the series and something that I always look forward to watching and a definite, definite perk of, I mean, the return is a joy to rewatch anyway, but it's, it really is up there. It really is a, a great experience. And so that's it. That brings me to the end of my part eight podcast. I hope you've enjoyed listening to me and infusing up the same bits that I've infused that. There's definitely lots more to unpack there that I will, I'm sure I will do in future podcasts and I'll, I'll definitely be thinking about. And every time I watch it, it just raises so many questions and makes me consider all the answers I've come up with or read or absorbed over time. And um, it really is just a remarkable bit of television. If you want to discuss my Twin Peaks podcast with me, then you can find me on Twitter at Twin Peaks Game. Uh, But other than that, thank you very much for listening and I will see you all again very soon.